Molly, thanks for joining me here today. If if you just want to get go ahead and tell me a little bit about how the the story behind sleep is a skill. Yes. Well, yeah, absolutely. First of all, thank you so much for having me here. I really appreciate you taking the time. And yeah, the story behind sleep is a skill is really that I was solving my own problem as it related to my sleep and for having many, many years of my life just relating to myself as just a bad sleeper, no big deal. I'm, I've always been like that, not a problem. I, I'm a night owl. I go to bed you know, pretty much as the sun is rising, that's what I do, not, you know, not to be really examined. And yet, I, as life went on like that, as an entrepreneur, added more stressors and more things to my plate, um, started really burning the candle at both ends, um, started getting sick more often, uh, more anxious and stressed, uh, until I actually went through my, my first real experience of insomnia, which lasted, you know, it would act, well, it began when I started traveling um, with my boyfriend internationally and started adding jet lag into these kind of maladaptive sleep behaviors. And it actually ended up being one of the most kind of transformative periods of my life when it became abundantly clear that how I was managing my health, and certainly as it related to my sleep, was just not a winning, <laughs> winning combination. So, and, you know, of course I can look back at it and, and laugh and be grateful, but at the time it was very scary and very confusing on how to restore kind of health and homeostasis to this area that felt very um, ironic that, and hence the name of the, of sleep is a skill is that it seems as if this would be something that would be a given for any of us to be able to achieve something so primal as to the ability to be able to sleep. And yet, certainly I went through this very challenging period of not being able to sleep and just, you know, entire nights after nights of just nothing. And during that period, you know, it was a scary question of, okay, so how, how can I sleep again? (laughs) And without having to go down what for me felt like Uh, a path that I wasn't interested in of going into pharmaceuticals and all of that, which is actually what, you know, when I went to the doctors, the first time was in Croatia and I had Google translate and they basically gave me their version of Ambien and real wake up call of there's gotta be another way than this. Uh, And so then I just really dedicated, you know, all of myself because nothing was working at that point. I couldn't, you know, get anything done. I couldn't be relied upon, you know, none of it because, I just couldn't count on myself to do the most fundamental thing, which was sleep. So I really threw myself into understanding more about this and then became really fascinated in the area of uh, circadian rhythms and chronobiology. And then it began to be this question of why don't we all know about this and why aren't we all more aligned with this approach that could really support our health and well-being. And so once I began to restore some balance to my sleep and then looking to beyond just bring balance, actually optimize sleep in a way that I had never experienced in my life, started bringing that to friends and family. And then it just sort of began to emerge from there and started having small group trainings on it. And now we have online um, courses for it and podcasts on the topic. And it just really blossomed into this really exciting area. 
Yeah, me personally, my my first. I mean, the time. I mean, historically, I've I've always uh, slept. I've n- never really had much trouble sleeping. But there was a time period of my life about started about six years ago, five maybe even seven years ago now that I I was I went through this period of chronic pain that I, I had sleeping problems for a while and right. ended up having this. Um, shoulder surgery and then that didn't really totally help the problem and I, I i dealt with the chronic pain for a while and then eventually i got that resolved and started sleeping okay again but it's uh no the sleep is is the worst because when that you just it just sort of screws up everything i feel that once if you can't get the sleep right absolutely oh my goodness and it really became obvious that for at least in my experience and seemingly many others that just without sleep, nothing really works. And it just is insidious and finds its way into so many areas of our lives. And I think we're at this interesting point in history of really beginning to understand even more how crucial this, this area is. And of course, you know, there's kind of common sense. Well, yeah, of course, sleep's important but really beginning to wrap our heads around it on a deeper level with some of the more interesting research coming out, certainly in more recent years, and to the mainstream uh, audience. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, I mean, I've you're talking about pharmaceuticals. I mean, I feel people, often there's that kind of uh, stigma with pharmaceuticals. And I mean, my, my view is that they're sort of like a tool like anything else. But- yes, sure. But obviously, there's side effects, and and it's you, most of them. If you're relying on them for a long period of time, it's yeah. There there's some certain side effects and consequences. But I, I found one of the besides, like, I mean, they they have they can have some useful uh, properties. But I find that they my experience is not really a lot of good pharmaceuticals that they they usually help you. They can help you fall asleep, but they don't really help you stay asleep. I mean, you've, yeah, found- absolutely. Yeah, and, and the type of sleep then that you tend to get from, you know, some of the hypnotics on the market or, you know, for often in an older generation that were given more benzodiazepines. Yeah. It's more of the sedative quality to the sleep and the sleep architecture looks very different. It's interesting. I can often tell now with my clients based on the different sleep tech that I have them wearing, even if they're across the world, I can look at their sleep stats from the night before and know if they took you know, Xanax or what have you to sleep, or if they didn't based on some of the the ways that their heart rate looks, their respiratory rate, their HRV, there's a number of things that then just so clearly deviate when they're really sedated and when they're not. Right. What one of the, the supplements I found to be are herbs that, that that helpful for my personal when I was having a lot of sleep issues and anxiety was ashwagandha. And if you've if you've your clients or you've used it yourself, or... yeah, yeah, that's a great one too. And you know, because there's so many kind of natural things that we can do to make a difference in our sleep, and and a lot of what I look at with people is behavioral based in a lot of ways and environmental from approach of the large overarching framework is from circadian rhythm entrainment. And from that approach, then we're kind of going from top down of some other things that can impact sleep or the strength of our circadian rhythm, you know, number one being light. And so being really incredibly mindful of our light environment. So I have people getting sun exposure first thing in the morning to act as that kind of anchor for their circadian rhythm. 
And of course, not just from behind a window, but literally getting outside and getting it on um, the surface of their skin, not wearing sunglasses, not wearing baseball hats and, you know, really optimizing for that and photoreceptors in our, you know, every, every day. So calibrating that and then, and then actually optimizing for the other side of light being darkness and really cultivating an environment where we get far more darkness than the average person, at least in a Western society. And, you know, so different ways to do that, but still be a part of normal culture too, and be a part of the, you know, 2020 and how to, how to do that. And so that's, you know, light and darkness. And then below that for circadian rhythm entrainment is temperature. And so of course there's environmental temperatures, but then, you know, kind of tucked underneath that are the things that we do to uh, shift our temperature, which, you know, can of course be things like exercise, but then meal timing is really fascinating one that can confuse the body and act as a signal. If we do, if we engage in uh, kind of upside down meal timing, which is what I used to do, I used to kind of backload my my meal timing and eat most of my food, you know, the largest percentage at the end of the day, basically, like shortly before bed or just mindlessly, you know, in front of Netflix or something. And then would have no real correlation to the understanding that that is impacting you know, my heart rate at night, my HRV, my body temperature, and then of course, quality of my sleep. But also the thing that seems even more interesting or not even more, but equally interesting is how, you know, many people will be like, oh, well, I don't eat right before bed, but they might eat, you know, a couple hours still before bed. And what we're really looking at is even kind of having people have as a bare minimum about four hours before bed to optimize mm-hmm. for glymphatic drainage. So that cleansing process of the brain during slow wave sleep. And so even if you do, if you stop eating your last morsel of food about four hours before bed, it really is interesting the changes in some of your biomarkers that we see. And there's some interesting research on that from Dr. Sachin Panda. He wrote the circadian code and you know, looking at some of the effects that that can have. And then, you know, so that's all in the realm of temperature. But then even the idea of thought timing is, I think, fascinating, um, that there are certain types of thoughts that we might be engaging in in the evening that are literally charged, but literally heating us up. So there's products on the market. I I had um, the inventor of this product called Ebb BB, which mm-hmm. I, I mentioned because it's interesting about it. the whole function of it is basically to cool down the prefrontal cortex, you know, for, because often people that are having difficulty sleeping are exhibiting kind of this hyper aroused brain state and then their brain tissue is heating up. So yeah, it's funny, funny you mentioned that. That, that, that reminds me of there's this, this, she was sort of a grandmother. Uh, it was like my adopted grandmother that, that she ended up passed away about a year ago during Mother's Day, around Mother's Day, right, like a couple of days before Mother's Day, and her name was Millie, and, and she used to say, I remember it sounds like in her kind of more of a kind of layman's terms that she felt that like if she would like speak on the phone too late at night, she would say that she got overstimulated and so she couldn't sleep properly. So. Yes, I so agree with that. Absolutely. You know, so there can be a bit of a strategy and an approach to the types of, you know, the, the types of content that we're engaging in. So what we're taking in and intake, and then also being mindful of, you know, what's internally being generated and then the effects that that can have. 
So that's a little trippy. <laughs> and then, and then of course there's, you know, other things that can impact our temperature based almost from a chronopharmacology perspective, whether it's the types of, you know, drugs that we might be taking, but then even on just a more kind of mass situation of so many people, you know, just drinking casually at right. night and the rise in body temperature that that can bring about, you know, ca- uh, coffee being another one to look out for, but, and then even dehydration, what that can do to your HRV, but then some of your sleep quality. But so all of those kind of being tucked under this circadian rhythm entrainment framework. But then in addition, we also look at what we call the sleep tripod um, approach. So understanding that in order to get great sleep, that we really want to look at the workability between the psychology. So our kind of framework and our uh, mental approach to sleep and then our physiology. So understanding if there's some things maybe out of whack with our overall health and well-being, and then as well as environmental. And so having workability in all three of those, and sometimes there's things that are glaringly kind of out of alignment in one um, of those areas more than the rest, but often they really feed into each other. So kind of going to work on that. And then, you know, I'm often speaking about the challenges in the 21st century around our sleep, you know, really post Edison and the ability to augment our days and really live outside of the, the natural rhythms of nature of sunrise and sunset in a way that really none of our ancestors engaged in beyond maybe like a bonfire or some candles once in a while, a lantern for the wealthy, but or for, you know, longer extended periods of time. But for the most part, we were really beholden to those rhythms of nature and then, but at the same time, well, you know, we might be looking at that from a, a guidepost of, you know, the current technology that is available still can be really helpful for us to help navigate out of the kind of mess that we've gotten ourselves into from a place of such high sleep deprivation rates and perceived to be going up, you know, not down. So uh, I wanted to, uh, I was wondering what, what um, tech that's oh. available to look at sleep through kind of new eyes and then start to become, you know, more responsible for the fact that, oh my God, the things that I'm doing are actually making a difference in my sleep. It's not just innate or, you know, gene phenomenon. It actually, sure. we have a lot of say of how it all looks and goes. No, I was wondering what, because uh, you probably, it sounds like you probably are familiar with it, or if you're not familiar with it, you're kind of do it, employing some of the the principles or methods about the, the quantified self movement. Have you familiar with that? Hello? Hello? Oh, shoot. I seem to have lost you during that part. I'm so sorry about that. That's literally no, never happened. No, no, no. It's all good. Uh, <laughs> I missed are, are that. You, are you familiar with the quantified self movement at all? Yes. Oh, Kevin Kelly. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, I love. Yeah. Very familiar. Yeah, yeah, I went to one of their conferences a while ago. Uh, this is like yeah, about seven, eight years ago in, um, in Palo Alto. And at the time, I remember one of the big companies that everybody was using to track their sleep was the Zio. And I remember yes. they went out of business. I used and to have what, a Zio. Okay. <laughs> and what, what do you use now to, uh, to measure, measure those kinds of things? Yeah. Well, that's so funny you mentioned the Zio. Yeah, they were sort of ahead of their time out yeah. of Newton, Massachusetts. Yeah. So now, and of course, granted, you know, the, the gold standard is the polysonogram. 
And, you know, so the, the things that are on the market are not going to get us those sort of results. However, there are certain things that we can extract with a decent um, amount of accuracy as it relates to, you know, certain studies that compare to the polysonogram, but uh, so case by case basis. So for example, I have just about every client that I work with um, usually wearing the aura ring and what but I also, with the caveat that I tell all of them not to really pay much attention to the sleep stages, because unfortunately they're just, yeah, not there yet. <laughs> you know, because for most of these, there can be a little bit more of a ability to have a bit more insight with some of the ones that are on your head, like the dream D R E M. But you know, it can be challenging to wear on a regular basis for many people. You know, especially for women, we've got our you know, long hair and just for, you know, maybe one or two nights, but, you know, as a regular thing, we just, we still have some challenges of how to make that kind of a habit. And, but what's interesting about some of these sleep trackers is a lot of them tend to be pretty solid with a couple of things. One total time duration, um, kind of getting a look at wake ups and then, you know, things like heart rate, the pattern of your heart rate throughout the night, your HRV, granted, they're different, they hold different algorithms based on which one you're looking at, which was type of sleep tracker, and body temperature can be insightful, and then elements that you can glean from respiratory rate. Movement. So I know some of them, yeah. like, the early, I remember the name of it, I had an app on my iPhone that, like, its main premise is like tracking your, the accelerometer tracking movement. Yeah. Oh, like sleep cycles was yeah, kind of the, you know, there's a, yeah, a bunch of different ones that can, you know, pull from even just you're using your phone or yeah, there's, there's a lot of different things that we can understand from those. And basically what, what's nice about some of these is that it can kind of just act as a bit more of an automated sleep diary. Because certainly in the past, that used to be some of the old adage, if you're having sleep troubles to start, you know, maintain, keep a sleep diary, you know, in analog sense. But now being able to have something that can a bit more automatically do that. And of course, if you have discrepancies, you know, logging those or, you know, tagging them. But you do get to see a um, decent amount of insight. And particularly over the long term, you can start to to extrapolate some patterns for yourself of things that are working and not working. So, yeah, the focus of my my podcast is about traumatic experiences and how people recover from uh, traumatic experiences. So, and then obviously uh, sleeping problems often are one of the like side effects of people that go through traumatic experiences. So how, like a lot of the the clients that you work with, you see a lot of uh, work with a lot of people that have gone through trauma and, PTSD, that type of thing. Yeah, actually, that seems to be really pervasive with a lot of people that, you know, because to by the time you're coming to something like sleep as a skill, there's a couple different types of people. Some, you know, just the avid biohackers, nice. you know, that are looking to always further optimize and take it to the next level. There's that group. There's, you know, the, the women going through menopause that are, you know, having difficulties with uh, hormonal instability and hot flashes. And just suddenly, you know, they were having fine sleep and now they're not sleeping, you know, kind of groups along those lines. But then there are also people that have been dealing with just the sense that, you know, a, a difficulty to be able to control their thoughts. I mean, I can't right. turn off my brain and, persistent nightmares and 
you know, just this ability or a sense of a lack of a locus of control around how their nights go. And yeah, absolutely trauma being linked up with those, you know, I've seen different vets come our way. It's also a lot of um, people post-retirement that will, you know, come to sleep as a skill complaining of difficulty sleeping. Of course, you know, then there can be multiple things going on with as you age in different seasons of our lives and the change in sleep just naturally. But, you know, if you pair that with trauma, you know, it can be particularly challenging. And the other, another question I have for you is that one of my friends that he has this sleep app. I was wondering if you ever heard of it called Piz, Piziz, like. Oh, yes. It's great for particularly naps. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know him, Rockwell? Yeah, I, I don't know him personally, but yeah. I do know of the app. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it really has this kind of trance-like effect. And it's so interesting yeah. how effective it can be for a lot of people. Yeah, what about, I mean, it sounds like you would use this kind of stuff, the uh, the binaural beats. What, what do you think about, about that stuff? Yeah, those are interesting. So here's, so one of the things that I'm um, kind of one of the frameworks or approaches is to what I call the desert island approach and how to get ourselves as kind of one of the goals that if we were to be dropped on a desert island with nothing but, you know, just the clothes on our back to know ourselves as the type of people to be able to get great sleep. So, you know, while I'll, you know, look at a lot of different types of sleep tech and things in accoutrements and, you know, the sleep industry, oh my goodness, it is huge. And it's such a money maker right now yeah. and there's so many things that you can go broke on and and not to say that it relates to binaural beats but also just how many things we i think at the root cause of it we can be doing that that are missing that can help you know create the amount of melatonin that is necessary so that we are sleeping on a regular and consistent schedule and kind of a lot of this becomes more effortless and, you know, of course, and that takes a lot of commitment and time and energy discipline. and discipline. Yeah, exactly. You know, so, but what I think is possible is when we do get some of the fundamental things aligned, then these extra elements can be great, but then we're not reliant on them, if that makes sense. You know? Yeah, uh, sure. I mean, but I mean, I mean, with this kind of thing, I mean, part of my approach, I mean, I, I've got a little, um, not as into as I used to be, but I, I mean, I was sort of into that biohacking kind of stuff is how I yeah. led me to some of this stuff. But uh, yeah, but I mean, it's something like binaural beats. I mean, it's not gonna yeah. really, it's something just to try to see if you respond to it or not. It's yeah. Not, not really and, a big investment. Uh, yes, yes, totally. And, you know, it can be such a cool way, especially for a, for a mind that has been, you know, just overactive and kind of on autopilot like many of us that have had, you know, trouble sleeping at different points in our lives, you know, it's like just the the help and the support and that can act as a kind of audio version of that and help, you know, on this kind of inexplicable level start kind of bringing coherence to our brain patterns. And yeah, it can be really, really fascinating. And some of the studies around things like that, you know, and and just sound in general. So, you know, some of the more basic sound elements looking at, you know, white noise, pink noise, and brown noise, and certain theories around could some of these different kind of background elements of sound amplify the amount of slow wave sleep that we're getting, you know, so there's still more studies to be done on to kind of get a 
a real kind of a conclusive evidence or idea on that one, but it, you know, it certainly is interesting and the effects are really very cool and intriguing. So uh, it's a cool what area. About, um, I, I meant to actually look up this for my own interest before, before speaking with you this time, but the, the, the blue light blocking glasses. I mean, what, what is the, I'm curious, what's the, uh, the research is, there, what type of research is behind, behind that, that technique or that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Great question. So the blue light blocking glasses, you know, there's a number of them, some that arguably work, you know, to fulfill on the name of blocking blue light specifically. And then there's others that don't work so great, you know, to fulfill on that name of blocking blue light. So there's clear ones and many of those unfortunately don't do a whole heck of a lot, but then you can move up, you know, to even very inexpensive kind of like safety goggles looking ones that are um, orange and those can block a percentage of the blue light. And then you can move up the rungs even um, further to red lenses that can block portions of the blue and green in the um, light spectrum. So basically and, the, the cool, uh, clear looking ones, don't really, they look cool, but they don't do anything. Yeah, they really don't do a ton. And I, it's such a, it's such a bummer as, you know, it would just be so great if they did a lot, but unfortunately, particularly for, for night, I mean, they're just not really going to cut it. And especially, you know, try going into like a Walmart or something and wearing those and thinking that it won't, that that would protect you from the massive amounts of um, blue light. It's unlikely. Well, have you so, seen, uh, speaking of this, one, one of the reasons I brought it up is this company, yeah. I have I have one of their watches, uh, Movement, and they, they recently came out with these blue light blocking glasses, but they they have some really good ads, but that's but they look kind of clear and they probably don't do a whole lot. I don't know if you've heard, it's spelled M-V-M-T, Movement. Yeah, yeah. I have seen those and they look like, beautiful. So from what I've seen, I haven't tried them. Yeah. Right. But unfortunately with some of the tests that you can do with them. So I I haven't had them, but I did have another um, client that had tested them and it didn't seem to, you know, block the blue light in the way that the amazing advertising seems to show. But, you know, hopefully that what can be next is to beginning to start to popularize this kind of weird look like that Bono-esque look of having the either amber or red, which those ones can actually really make a difference. And so the reason, so, you know, to kind of underscore the the why of that is that first of all, the, it can help to know that our master clock, the suprachiasmatic nucleus is really linked up closely with, you know, as far as our optic nerves. And so the light going into our eyes is particularly vulnerable as far as the, the kind of cues to that master clock. And so if we are pummeling it with this kind of non-native blue light, it's such high percentages. The problem is that then that in studies shows a suppression effect around melatonin production. And so if you're looking to be able to create a consistent, you know, bedtime, wake time, and then just like I did for many years, have this experience of what, why can I not go to sleep at the time? I want to go to sleep. Having really no uh, awareness of the things that I was doing in my environment. So whether that was having lights on that were, you know, energy efficient. And so they, and the energy efficient bulbs, whether, 
you know, the LEDs or the less energy efficient, but cheap, the fluorescent lights, those have, you know, much higher percentage of cool lights frequency in that. So it's a lot of green and blue and those can be problematic to the production of melatonin, which is a lot of what we're trying to do behaviorally and environmentally to help produce. So when you uh, put on those blue blockers, then that can kind of help be one step in the equation and the other step being to help control your environment and really, you know, minimize that type of light. And then, of course, we have, you know, photoreceptors on our skin that are also kind of seeking out and having like, you know, little clocks basically in our cells that are also trying to kind of stay on time or have a sense of what it should, everything should be doing and kind of working together. So ideally, the whole environment mimics more of what we would have seen in the past post-sunset. But, you know, Mm -hmm. of course, again, 21st century. So then some things that we can do are switch over to more... um, kind of uh, red-based light. So have a very weird looking environment, very biohackery, but have, you know, red lights throughout in your, in your space. Um, but if you're not willing to do that, then, you know, kind of the romantic like candlelight, fire, lanterns, you know, old school, but if you're still not willing to do that, then uh, next on the scale would be like incandescent bulbs, you know, kind of like if you picture some of those restaurants that are, you know, supposed to be really dim lit and romantic. So it's it's sort of a hierarchy of of, of light in terms of, of, of of messing with your circadian rhythm. Yeah, absolutely. Because point being that basically around in around the 80s was when a big push to kind of shift away from those more energy inefficient bulbs and over to these more energy efficient bulbs. And then, you know, interestingly, even a, a rise in sleep deprivation around those points. But, you know, what you just see is the percentage is very different of the cool base tones in those lights versus the older lighting. So if we can kind of go back to some of that, you know, you can make that switch over. And then for the more high tech people that aren't concerned, maybe with EMFs, you can also look at things like Philip Hughes, that you can automate kind of a circadian setting so that it will go very like rosy colored in the evening. So you don't have to really think about it. Right. I mean, another thought I had, I was wondering if you're familiar with this. I remember uh, hearing about how one of the, I mean, I heard one of the theories behind like, like cannabis and particular THC being a helpful for people with PTSD is how it sort of interferes with uh, nightmares. And I think it does something with REM sleep. Are you, are you familiar with that at all? Yeah, actually I just had a, one of the foremost researchers on cannabis and CBD as it relates uh-huh. To sleep and of course pain management, but uh, yeah, she was actually alluding to some of that research as well because yeah, it's a it's a tricky area. So there's a lot of like testing and you know person to person of different ratios and kind of getting these things right because you know THC can be disruptive to our normal sleep architecture as well, mm-hmm. but it can be super helpful to fall asleep. You know, but depending on the on the type and dosage and all of that, then um, it can either really help support a healthy sleep architecture or not so much. But yeah, so a lot of people that are dealing with some of that trauma, then they might exhibit some kind of out of the norm or out of the bell curve displays of REM sleep, which REM sleep usually comes in the second half of the night. And so they might have, you know, abnormal amounts of REM sleep, heart rate getting to particular high points throughout that 
REM is also when we tend to, our body warms up a bit more. And part of the theories being that we go into REM arguably to kind of like turn our brain back on a bit and prepare to wake up shortly. But yeah, if we, so by bringing in cannabis into the conversation, you know, that can certainly help dull things, but CBD, there's some, you know, promising effects around that because it's kind of leaves out some of the concerns around THC and its effect on our sleep architecture. So definitely, unfortunately, I wish there was more studies that would be done in this area, but for so long, you know, that was sort of a black hole. But now it's exciting that we're starting to see an uptick in that so we can have a bit more information in that. But still, as, as you're as you alluding to, as you alluded to, the until it becomes federally legal, it's still it's still challenging to do quality studies because yes. it requires a lot of regulatory barriers and, and yeah. financial ones to to get them done. Absolutely, yeah. So some of you know you look at these studies and it's like there's eight people in it and there's you know whatever. So it's it can be challenging to see on a large scale, but I, I think. There's such such a changing of the guards around the acceptance of that as a real medicine. So it, I'm I'm eager to see more come out on that. And of course, you know, from the quantified self movement, a lot of anecdotal evidence for people right. with their own kind of self testing, which you know can also be really empowering to for certain people that have just struggled and struggled. And then, oh my God, I, I take this and I, you know, can kind of restore some semblance of peace in my evenings. So it is an exciting area. All right. So if somebody was like, what would be your, like your top three uh, sleep tips? Uh, if somebody was having some, some, you know, not some major problems, but they just would like to improve their, optimize their sleep. What would be your top three tips and what would be your top three like favorite sleep tech items to recommend as well? Mm, yeah, great question. So playing right along with the circadian rhythm entrainment framework, it's kind of going from top down. So light being um, just so, so crucial to kind of restoring this balance. So what that would look like is if you get nothing out of anything I've said today, just beginning your day with a massive hit of sunlight. And what that hit would look like is at least around 20 or so minutes. But, you know, again, the getting outside, not from behind a window, not from behind a car window, um, but actually physically outside and getting that into your eyes in particular. So that would be number one and, and doing that a consistent time each day. So, you know, really like first thing after you wake up. So like the people that own dogs are really uh, well primed for this to get out and kind of walk them or what have you. And so that would be number one. And then below that and linked up with light is then the importance of darkness. So cultivating uh, darkness in a way that's kind of out of the bell curve so what that can look like is experimenting. I just had a uh, anthropologist and evolutionary biologist on the podcast who challenged everyone to basically engage in a candlelight challenge. And he'll have his students and professor as well try to just take on this candlelight challenge for two weeks. And so post-sunset, you just use candles and see um, the change in your sleep. And And so just doing that, just attempting to go to post-sunset, really uh, virtually no faux light or, you know, make it like fire-based or very, very warm um, and see what that will do. And then... I don't know how do people do that today without uh, using their phones, though. 
<laughs> yes, exactly. Very good point. So with that, if you have the iPhone, you can literally just Google color filter. So you can the uh, red light filter for the iPhone. And within the settings, kind of locked, hidden away is an option to have not the night mode. That's very different. The red filter that will turn your phone all red. So it's like a little fire phone. And you'll be surprised the difference that that can feel. If you have an Android, you can get the app Twilight um, and it will kind of do the same effect. So you can try with those. And then the third one underneath that would be, you know, temperature. So ensuring that you have uh, clear deviations of temperature throughout the day, since we're, you know, stats even before the lockdown were that the average person in, you know, Western environments were spending upwards of 90% of their day inside, indoors. And so I'd wager that that number is even higher than that now. And so from that point, we're very much zoo animals and having no exposure to the elements in the past, that would be a real clear cue to the body. So when the sun would set, it would just get cold. And so that, that kind of change to so being really active and, you know, heating up your body during the day, during daylight hours, and then at night, cooling that. I and mean, of course, you can hack that inside too. So make it warmer during the day and cooler at night but also aligning your activity in the same way of that. And, you know, coupled within that is then not doing anything that will heat up your body post-sunset. So no eating, no drinking for the most part. I mean, this would be to get optimal sleep if you're, if you're committed to that. So those things alone can really change the course of your sleep future and your health in a way that for me is just still shocking to me every day of, the difference of how I feel versus how I used to feel. It's incredible. All right. Well, what about the, the three like sleep tech products you'd, you'd recommend? Sure. Okay. Yes. So I have just about every person um, that works at sleep is a skill uh, that, you know, that we work with wearing at least the aura ring to begin. And then another one that a lot of people like is the chili pad so the Uller, that can be helpful to kind of cool your environment if no matter what your environment can look like, even if you have, you know, small confined space, AC, no AC, all those things. But also blue blockers can be pretty important too. But ideally the red lens that we discussed, but also knowing that you can have more than one. So you can do what they call kind of transitional red lens, um, amber lenses. So post sunset wearing those, or if you have to go out and be social, those would be those amber colored ones. And then within the last least hour or sometimes more, depending on the person switching over to those red light ones, but the red are, you know, just, they're much darker. So it's like kind of when you're not doing as much and not going to trip or something. Um, but those things can all really help like fundamentally shift your, your sleep results. All right. Well, uh, well, thanks a lot, Molly. Any, any other uh, final thoughts you have? Yeah, I just really appreciate you providing a platform and forum to share about what I deem to be one of number one, the most important things that we can do to take on our health, which is kind of a controversial statement since, you know, many Many people, when we think of our health, certainly I did for many years, would think, okay, you know, whatever, it's, it's the new year, it's January 1st, I'm going to, in order to take on my health, I'm going to eat X things, I'm going to go to the gym X number of times. And I think what I'd really like to see of a shift in narrative 
to make, you know, sleep goals and that putting that as number one then can have a real kind of ripple effect in the rest of those things. So then when you are rested, you know, you, the likelihood of you getting to the gym early in the morning or making those healthy food choices, you know, really improves for most of us, particularly with the hormonal balancing that can happen when we do get ample sleep. So beginning to shift that conversation to making that number one, I would just love to see more of. Well, you just made me think about when you were talking about hormones. I know that, uh, yeah, definitely messes with your hormones. I know it like you'll, you'll definitely for, for men, I know at least, I would imagine probably women too, that it, if you're sleep deprived, your testosterone levels oh, yeah. definitely lower, reduced. Yeah, absolutely. Because also women, you know, I've been talking a lot about circadian rhythm, but we also have to worry about infradian rhythm, not worry about, but be mindful of the infradian rhythm. So, you know, throughout the whole monthly cycle, then there's ups and downs in our hormones. So really noticing that and then the effects that sleep can have on on the stabilization of that is really crucial. And to your point around testosterone for men, and a whole slew of other hormones that get normalized when our sleep is you know, rich and consistent. And some of those being leptin and ghrelin, if we're looking to keep, you know, our, our health and our waistline, then the hunger and satiety hormones can kind of come back to element of homeostasis. And then of course, normalizing cortisol and melatonin throughout the day. So having that nice rise of cortisol in the, in the morning, and then as it subsides to kind of shift over to melatonin in the evening, all of those can really kind of come back to workability that so many of us have deviated from and might not even kind of be aware of it. Yeah, all right. Well, uh, Molly, yeah, well, thanks again. And yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. And uh, Oh, awesome. Thank you so much. And you too. All right. Take care. Bye. Thanks. Bye.